Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. You know what I'm about to say, and you want to skip for 30 seconds, but I'm asking you, please don't. It has been an incredible few weeks on the Tortoise Shack. We have raised thousands of euro for people in Gaza. We have raised thousands of euro for people in tents in Rafa, and we have managed to get essential items, infant formula, nappies, food, and just cash into people's pockets who really need it. And that's all because of the Tortoise Shack community. That is almost entirely due to the people who are members of the Tortoise Shack. Our Patreon members are an incredible community and they have driven this. And while I'm giving lots of credit there, I also have to give credit to the powerhouse of women who are doing the actual hard work in Gaza, delivering the aid, getting getting the details and, and coordinating what is, is an absolutely incredible initiative. And thank you so much to everybody who's donated and contributed. We are still looking for your support. We want you to click the link that's at the bottom of this podcast. And I also need you to keep the bloody podcast going. The Tortoise Shack has no ads. It has no sponsors. We always say it's more than a podcast. It is activism. So your support, your five quid a month to us, is the easiest bit of activism you can do. You're helping keeping conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep going and helping us keep pushing the envelope when it comes to trying to deliver for people who really, really, really need your support right now. So if you can, if you have it, please click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise It's the only way we keep the show on the road and we can continue to do the work that has helped so many people. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. I am shutting up now. Enjoy the show. Hello everybody, my name is Rosie Mead and I'd like to welcome you to the Muscle Podcast. Today my guest is Dr. Emma Penny and Emma is a lecturer in the Yates Academy of Arts, Design and Architecture at the Atlantic Technological University and Emma is based in Sligo. She's also a joint founder with the poet and activist Sophie Mean of the online Working Class Writing Archive. Welcome Emma, it's an absolute pleasure to be in conversation with you today. In this dialogue, we're largely going to focus on Emma's work on working class studies and on the archive. But I really want to underline the fact that Emma's writing and activism is hugely intersexual, both in theory and practice. And that, as she says herself, dialogue is absolutely central to how she approaches the work. And we're going to touch on that idea of dialogue in our discussion. Emma, you identify as a working class academic and it's clear that's not just a statement of, of biographical fact. It's, there's more to it than that, I think, in terms of how you, you talk about that. It also relates to your, to your wider academic, culture and activist praxis and to your close association with working class studies, which we're going to talk about in a little while, um, as, and working class studies as kind of a practice and as part of an intellectual movement. Maybe you could start, though, by telling us about your positioning as a working class academic and why that is so important. And why do you think it is so necessary to claim spaces for working class academics within academia? Okay, so I think there's two there's two ways of answering that, and there's actually two parts to that question. The first is, as a working class student or a first generation student in a college campus or in a university campus, the first in your family to um, go to university, and in my case, the first in my family to do anything outside the home, which is why I kind of bring it back then. Uh, to this idea of am I a working class student or am I a welfare class student you know because it is very different if you're the first the first person in your family to really do anything outside of that private sphere of the home and so I think the identity is important because as a working class student there are certain kinds of embodied experiences that you go through 
in the process of becoming an academic, of going to college, of the from um, I mean, one of the examples I give in that first article that I wrote what is, you know, if 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 one of your friends in college says, oh, you know, my God, I'm so poor this week. And I'd be thinking, what do they mean by that? Because I have no idea. Do they mean that they don't have enough money to to go out tonight? Or, or in my case, are they going home to a situation where like the presses are empty? My mom's there, the electricity might be cut off, you know, so just kind of understanding that you're existing in this world that doesn't quite fit, uh, you don't really fit within it. And then that actually creates these embodied experiences, these affects, these emotional responses. Um, so for instance, you know, if, if you're on the special rate of grant as I was on, which is, uh, I always found kind of, um, a little bit, uh, patronizing as, as a definition, but, you know, if Susie don't play your, pay your fees on time, for instance, and you're, you go to tap your library card to get into the library and you're, you're locked out, you know, it's there, the, there's like little barriers like that that are physical, but there's also other ones. And I think like as you move through, you, you suppress them. And certainly I did. And because of the way I sound, I was able to absolutely pass as middle class all the way through my, um, academic life. And I suppressed all of those feelings, but they were still there. I still felt different. I still felt that I was going home to a different space. I was from a different space and that though never the twain shall meet. So you have this idea of a, a shame that comes with that or of a splitting of your own identity. And it wasn't until I met other working class women who were in academia that I, I realized that those experiences could actually be transformed into something that uh, amounts to embodied knowledge and they could be productive and they could allow me to explain something and to actually talk about something. So the idea that they no longer need to just live in my body as stigma and shame, but they could actually be really productive and empowering. And so that's one aspect of why I identify as a working class academic is literally because I hold that embodied knowledge and I, I talk about it. And that's something that that I share now with my students. So I'm able to bring class into the classroom in a very deliberate way. Um, the other reason I think that I, I like the identification of a working class academic. And, and, and I think it's really important to note that even if I'm a working class academic now making, I make 42,000 euros a year, which is three times more than my mother raised six children on. <laughs> um, I'm, I can still class myself as an, a working class academic and it's because of those embodied experiences it's because who I am now is literally made up of that life. So yes, I am a working class academic. And the other, the other, the other reason is really related to and grounded in working class life. So working class life moves differently. It requires different kind of innovations in movement, in time, in labor. It also comes with community, like, the estate, the council estate that my mom still lives in. I mean, really, it is a very, very special place. It still kind of operates like you're, you know, the kids are out playing. Everyone kind of knows each other. There's, there's this um, idea that Kathleen O'Neill said to me once, who's, who we'll talk about later, but the idea that in a working class estate, you pass the same 20 euros around every house. And I think that there's, there's that aspect of community. There's an aspect of innovation. There's an approach to life that actually translates into research design, into methodology, into approach that actually is distinctive. And so I think along, I think, I think it's one 
thing in terms of the experience of academia and that embodied knowledge, but also bringing those kind of particular aspects of working class life. There is just one other thing I want to say in response to that question, because I think in, in kind of preparation for this interview, I was thinking of my output. So my research output over the past two years. And actually, you know, it's, it's quite interesting because I haven't published written work and, and I have very little solo work, right? And we're going to talk about collaboration later, but I really haven't published anything in the last three years, but I have worked on many, many, many projects. So I've been resource building. I've been engaging with communities. I have been, um, organizing workshops, um, community building, connection building. And so I feel that that kind of work is undervalued in an academic framework. And so when you look at my CV, you will see uh, project after project after project after project, but you will not see as many publications as perhaps the next person. Um, and so I feel like just kind of understanding that the kind of academic that I am um, means that I'm, I'm, there's there's different kinds of outputs and it's it's a real process. And sometimes because I'm in the middle of five different processes at the one time, which I am now, that it's not always available for a CV. It's not always markable. I can't always include it. And yes, because I'm doing all that work, it's really, really hard to switch from that activist mindset into right now I'm going to sit down and write an academic paper. You can't be two things at once. And well, certainly I can't. Um, but it's just something I've been thinking about in terms of what is a working class academic. That's such an interesting, such an interesting answer, and that and that just the points you made about the kind of embodied experience that it becomes something productive in your work and it feeds your work in so many kind of rich and interesting. I think it's, it's a very very powerfully made point, um, and also I suppose what you're saying about the kind of the valuation of certain kinds of output in academia and the you know the discrediting or the misrecognition of other kinds and there's there's a lot that we could say about that I think and the kind of toxic culture that kind of prevails I think in terms of even even the notion of output itself I think has got so many dubious connotations um but I suppose one of the kind of productive ways that your working class identity works is through your involvement in what's called working class studies and some of the listeners may be familiar with this working class studies, but may, and others may not be. So I think it may be useful to kind of like even to just like introduce it and explain what it is. And I suppose a question would be, what is the overall purpose or what is the project of working class studies? If if there is such a thing, because there may be so much diversity with it that maybe there isn't a unified project, but, but maybe there is. Um, and also then, how, where does it come from? How vibrant a field of study is this in Ireland? What kind of research conversations are going on? How are you fe being fed internationally? Like, what, are, what, is, what is happening in this whole space? And I suppose I'm kind of really interested in this because as my own discipline and background is in the social sciences, and there's a lot of discussion in, in social sciences about working class life, working class communities, but often in a very objectifying kind of way where the research is done on working class communities, not maybe as much research up as there should be, but that's again, is another conversation. And I suppose my sense that working class studies is, is starting from somewhere quite different. So it'd be great if you could maybe give us a sense of some of those debates and currents and where people should go if they want more information. But also, I think it's crucially, 
who or what is included under this banner of working class and working class studies? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, you know, I've been involved uh, over the past five years now with the Working Class Studies Association, which is based in the United States. It was started in a little town called Youngstown, Ohio, um, 25 years ago. And it, it, it has recently kind of, um, the new president, uh, Jennifer Vernon, which she, she's just incredible. And the, the real project of that organization at the moment is, um, uh, class solidarity across activist spaces. So a really, really intersectional, um, project that, that they're really trying to roll out. I think the reason that, I, and I think when you're talking about why is working class studies different to say study of working class within a social science framework, I think, Honestly, I think I, I've always kind of been interdisciplinary, you know, like my PhD was was kind of um, uh, examined both by the uh, School of Social Sciences and the Department of English at UCD. So I've always really been uh, interdisciplinary. And with that, I've kind of always kind of I've had an aversion to the uh, kind of methodo- methodological rigidity of social sciences in some way to actually be able to witness working class life. And also, um, just, I think working class studies, why it's important is that it, it's, it allows us to kind of bring in everybody. So you don't need to be a social scientist, but you can be, you can be a, a farmer. You can be studying agriculture. You know, you can be, uh, from anywhere. And I think that the, the root of that and the importance of that is goes back to kind of my first answer, my, the first question you asked me which is about embodied experience. What do you bring as a working class academic to this field? How are you innovating? What is your experience of it? And so really at the crux of it, it really is about understanding that what you produce and what you learn and how you engage, how you feel about that is almost as important as how you, what you think about it. And so working class studies really gives a lot of space to storytelling, to academics' lives, to how they're actually feeling engaging with the academy, with their discipline, where they're actually being able to innovate within it, where they're finding barriers, where where they're finding sharp edges. Um, yeah, I think I think that's it. And I think there, there's different kinds of organizations. There's the Working Class Studies Association, which is really based on kind of uh, giving voice and, and platforming working class people, activists, non-academics and academics alike. And then you have the Alliance of Working Class Academics who kind of are, are are not focused so much on the actual work of working class studies. So they're not focused on the academic work or projects, but they are really focused on the idea of access and equality for both staff and students within the university system. So this idea of, um, you know, inclusion beyond the point of entry. Right. And like, how does that actually look and how does that actually function? So I'm, I'm really lucky to have been involved in both organizations, um, over the last couple of years in Ireland. Unfortunately, uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, there's no culture of working class studies here. It, it, it's always been kind of difficult to talk about class, um, no matter the discipline. <laughs> and, um, so. It's been really good for me to have those international ties. So to have the Alliance of Working Class Academics 
in in England, Scotland, Wales, and then to have the Working Class Studies Association in the United States, because their methodologies have been really important for me as I try to kind of make inroads here. So with the Working Class Studies Association, uh, or the working the Irish Working Class Studies Conference, rather, that, that I organized in Liberty Hall. And then I'm actually, uh, I suppose, my 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 proper title at the moment is a decolonial specialist, but um, I, 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 I kind of decided that uh, I'm not going to. Uh, I, I think if I was going to be a decolonial specialist for ATU, I'd need a lot of help and it would be a collaborative project. So instead, what I've decided is we're going to start a, a storytelling project with students and staff. Uh, from working class backgrounds who to talk together and meet together. And that's actually an idea and a methodology I brought from the United States. So I'm really excited about that. So hopefully, yes, you know, there will be, I think it'll probably be Ireland's first ever um, program for working class or first generation financially insecure students that is led by working class staff. So that's really exciting. I mean, I'm not Terribly surprised that there isn't a strong tradition of working class studies in Ireland, considering our aversion to talking about class full stop. Do you mean know? So, but it is really interesting to to sort of hear about what you're planning to do with the students and to sort of again, as you mentioned earlier, that kind of embodied experience that becomes a productive kind of resource for for thinking and talking about the world as well. So it's really really interesting. Um, we're going to circle back to some of the ideas you, we we talked a little bit about at the start and, um. I mean, you're somebody who really, really seems to enjoy collaborative work. I mean, that's and it's really evident in, in not just in the actual the more than one name at the top of the, st- the work that you've written, but the actual structure in terms of how they're laid out, the kind of dialogue, dialogical approach that you would adopt. And an article, one of the articles that you've written that really kind of struck me very profoundly was a piece that you wrote with, with um, Laura, Laura Lovejoy called Navigating Academia and the Welfare Class. And I suppose in that you and it's something you've already mentioned that you you kind of unpack the working class identity a little bit more because you identify yourself as a member of the welfare class. And we'll talk a little bit in a little while about the kind of what you were talking about in that article and specific issues that you, you address and that you name. But even that identification with the, the, the term welfare class, I thought that was really interesting and, and quite challenging because as you acknowledge in the article, in, in our like media sphere, in our political sphere, in our public sphere, the concept of the welfare class has actually been used to engender stigma. Do you, know, you know, it has been used as a term of abuse. Um, it's politically and morally weaponized against political. So the associations have tended to be negative and deliberately negative. You know, there's a, you know, a kind of a way in which it is, it is kind of like it is mobilizes the term. In quite abusive and negative ways, and yet, and yet, you use it about yourself. So that's kind of an interesting kind of, I think, act of resistance in and of itself. But maybe you could talk with us about that concept. I suppose what the kind of complex and controversial meanings of it might be, and and why you decided to draw upon it in in that article. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much, and thank you for reading it um, and engaging with it so wonderfully. I, I think, you know. I wrote, we wrote it for that exact reason. It was really funny because when we saw the call for papers for that, for that issue, and that's actually how I got involved in the Working Class Studies Association, because that's their journal. It was published in the Journal of Working Class Studies. Um, and me and Laura, w- both working class women in academia, I was 
a welfare class student in the sense that I was from a welfare class background and she was currently on welfare as a teaching assistant at the time and, and herself also from a working class background. But we didn't really think about welfare. So, so it's so funny that even two women who were really class conscious and wanted to talk about working class experience, um, we weren't even thinking about our welfare class identities in producing that article initially. And she, she invited me over to her house and she was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make you, she made me this like beautiful dinner with like rice and broccoli and uh, cashew nuts. And I've, I've made it, I make it every week since it was just wonderful. But I said to her, I was like, there's, I'm struggling here. I was, I was, I was full of anxiety. So when you talk about like all of that embodied knowledge, yes, sometimes, sometimes it comes out at really painful ways. And so I was sitting at her kitchen table and I was like, I can't write this. I don't know where I fit. I mean, like, I understand I'm part of a working class community. Yeah. But my experiences are so vastly different and I don't know what to do. I feel like an imposter, even in the idea of working class. And so I was just lucky to have Laura as a mentor in that moment because she turned around and she said, Emma, no, this is perfect. This is exactly what we should be doing. This is what our article is going to be. It's not nav navigating academia in the working class. It's navigating academia in the welfare class. And this is what we're going to talk about. So even though I kind of had been like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm able to talk about this embodied experience is so important. She saw that embodied knowledge in my you know, very visceral, um, anxious moment at that kitchen table and said, this is where the knowledge is. And I think that that's so important. And it goes back to that idea of, you know, why is collaborative work important? And I think like, if you want to value an embodied experience and assign value to something that you had previously shamed yourself for, you, it actually requires a relational practice or a relational praxis. So it's really, really hard to do that work on your own, to take something that you have previously shamed yourself for or has been, you know, an outlawed experience or been, uh, you know, subject of stigma. It's really hard to transform that into a into an empowering position without the help of somebody else. So if you want to assign value to an embodied experience, it has to be relational. You have to engage in a relational practice, which is why I love collaborative work. And actually, I think I've engaged in it so much that I can't do anything on my own anymore, um, <laughs> which... Uh, yeah, I kind of already talked about. But yeah, I think reclaiming the idea of of, of welfare class, uh, you know, as so many kind of uh, marginalized groups have done, I think it's really important to kind of say, okay, you know, we, we wrote that article very soon after Leah Radker, uh, you know, had his wonderful uh, advertising campaign on the on Dublin buses, uh, which was welfare cheats cheat us all, you know, and um you know, interviewing people on the streets of North Dublin about whether or not they've ever cheated and all this kind of stuff. And it was just really, really, really hurtful. And I hate, I hated it. Um, and it's really funny because Laura made, she was really involved in the, um, uh, repeal the eighth movement. And she made the point of, you know, within that movement, it was really hard for her to be part of that together for yes movement because Leah Radker was such a part of it. And, and, you know, she had friends retweeting his tweets as part of, you know, the end goal. And yes, there's arguments around that. But I think what really pissed us off about it is that, you know, trust women and welfare cheats cheat us all. I mean, there's a tension there. 
And um, so we explored that then after after the repeal the eighth movement. But again, as I say, we explored it in communities. We we held we held um, you know, meetings that kind of were like debriefing meetings, public meetings where we talked about this stuff. So again, it's not something you can put on a CV. It's just something you do. Um, and yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. I mean, the context for the welfare, I hadn't been aware that that was, that was part and parcel of the kind of the context for the writing of that. But of course, yeah, the timelines are absolutely the same and the kind of contradiction between the, we can trust women, but we can't trust, you know, we can't trust anybody on welfare. That's just, you know, inscrutable. And, 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 and also the kind of weird alliances that come together in, in kind of like referendum politics in the Irish context as well is another interesting kind of, a kind of issue that you're writing, uh, talking about there. So yeah, there, there's a, really a lot going on within it. Um, in the article, you, you write that, um, when the visibility and representation of the working classes in academia is limited, the visibility and representation of welfare class academics is almost non-existent. And you've, you've kind of spoken to that point already. And I suppose I was really struck and it really made me think when I was reading your article that the extent to which academia's default setting is to assume that its students, employees are middle class. And so, like, I mean, the, you really kind of bring that out. And I thought it was really interesting how kind of clearly you make that point in the article. And in, in other words, it's sort of assumed that irrespective of where where you come from or what class you of origin you come from or background by virtue of being in and of the university and around the university you know in middle classness is engendered do you know you know like that you know like no matter where you come from and where you're going essentially middle classes comes by being being part of this community and then another paper you wrote with um judy chakavati and alice fellman you comment on and, and poetry and literature are kind of key to your your academic identity and as well, um, that the more you engage with the poetry establishment as a PhD student, you learn that class was unspeakable, impolite. And I th- again, I thought this was a really powerful and interesting line of analysis. Um, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on it a little bit here. Maybe I suppose to explain like this middle class orientation you sort of see and witness in the university and, and how that is seen and felt both in the culture and in the disciplinary orientations of the university. Yeah, again, thank you so much for engaging so wonderfully with my work. It's so great to have these conversations. Um, I just think that it's just a brilliant platform. So thank you again. And yeah, so I, I, this is why I also feel like race critical theory is so important. Like, you know, and, and that interdisciplinary work is so important because like when you understand like how how norms function and what the ordinary is and the quality of being just human, you know, um, I, I think Richard Dyer's analysis of whiteness in that, in that regard was really in, in, interesting and important um, point of reflection. And I think it goes the same for class, right? So, um you know, if if you step outside that norm, and there's many ways that you can, um, you know, you're. If we take the disciplinary measures, right? So if we start there, and um, like something as simple as you know, I I was lucky enough to be like to receive, I think maybe like four or five travel grants or um, awards, scholarships when I was in my PhD program at UCD, you know, from the uh, association the International Association for Irish Literature, ISIL, um, and, and just like departmental grants. But I was never able to, 
you know, the, the way they're structured is that you buy your plane ticket, you pay for your accommodation, you give receipts, and then you get reimbursed. And, you know, so I, I was kind of in the position of always constantly in my academic life asking for special accommodation. I'm sorry, I don't have the money to pay up front. Um, so, and again, every single time you're doing that, you're reminded that you don't fit. You're reminded that you're somehow outside of the norm. And the problem with it, it though, the real problem is the extent to which a working class student in that position is self-advocating constantly, right? So f- especially if you're, if you're, <laughs> if you make it through your degree and you're in a postgraduate situation, you are just constantly self-advocating. And there's a huge amount of labor in that, both physical and emotional. And again, we're going back to that idea of an embodied experience because um, it really, really is. You feel it everywhere. It is an affective, you know, itinerary of being a working class student in academia really is what you could call it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's something that needs to be like really, really addressed. <laughs> um, but. I think when, when I kind of started to look at the links between, okay, I'm studying English literature and I'm having these experiences, um, around the awkwardness of class in my department, but where is it actually showing up in, in what I'm studying and what I'm learning and even what I'm being asked to teach, which I think is really where it started to hit me because I see teaching as a, a privilege and a responsibility, something really exciting. Like, I, I, I always love the idea of research led teaching. I think I do teaching, uh, uh, research, teaching led research is, is, is how I would describe my work, you know? Um, I, I just think it's, it's amazing. But, um, so I, I realized that, you know, of taking, taking Paula Meehan as an example of somebody who is not only from the tenements, right? The same tenements as my grandmother and my family are from, who was equally moved out of those tenements who, that when they were deemed the worst slums of Europe, in Europe and uninhabitable to these new council developments in, in North Dublin, Finglas and Cabra. And, you know, it's fine, but like the amount of times that I heard, can we really call her a working class poet? I don't think we should do that. Right. So from the very moat, from the very, start it's seen as a contaminant it's seen as something that's going to dirty up her poetry and make it less valuable and um and but i i the reason i bring up polamina is because she has a poem called the exact moment i became a poet right and she it's about being a young girl in in primary school and her um teacher says to her you know you need to pay attention to your books or you'll end up in the sewing factory and she sees at that point that there is this absolute devaluing of everything she knows and seen and everyone she loves and her entire community. And she's like, okay, I need to be a representative voice, right? That is what that poem is about. Now, the fact that that can be read without a single mention of social class, the fact that we have critique on that, that doesn't even mention class, the fact that we can talk about it as, um, you know, a young person's coming to understand the the power of words and that's actually why 
you know, that's why it's called that. And that's why she became a poet, because she understood the impact of the words. Yes, sure. But it does have a class context that we should be able to talk about without this idea that the poem is somehow muddied or contaminated or the achievement of the poem is somehow contaminated or the value of the poem is somehow contaminated by it. And so I, I kind of really started to then interrogate this concept of universalism, of universal value and of the of, of good literature being something that gives us a universal truth. And what what I think is it's actually really simple. We we exist in a world where unless you transcend, right, the idea of class, right, or race or gender or um, you know, uh neurodivergence or whatever diverges from the norm, unless you transcend that, you can't actually have a piece of work that's universally valuable. And so I think it's really about kind of re Kind of, and this is again going back to your first question: What is the value of working class academic? Well, I was able to come in here and say I'm from there. I, I appreciate that. And also, what about the idea of universal value without the prerequisite of transcendence? I mean, it's very simple. But the idea that we kind of have this orthodoxy that it can't be achieved is, is I think, the the real issue. Yeah, it's it, it's really interesting what you're saying there because in 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 the interviews that I'm doing, um, one of the interviewees is, is Gavin Titley, who's written a book called "Is Free Speech Racist?" You're probably familiar with it, and one of the the kind of points that he makes in that book is that very often people who point to racism in society are in a sense accused of of. Of all, not accused of being racist, but accused of bringing it up, of contaminating the world by, you know, you're bringing that up again. Here we have something good going on and you're sort of, you're ruining it by bringing this sort of dimension of racism into it by, by accusing it or saying this is, you know, this is an issue. And it sounds to me that's quite a similar experience to what you're yeah, describing, um, that you're sort of saying that, that, that by virtue of, of talking about the class element in the poetry, which is hugely important to the constitution of that poem and to our identity, that you're seen to be bringing something, as you say, dirty into the room or sort of contaminating the conversation. And anyway, I don't know, do you want to say something about that? Is that a kind of a parallel? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think, especially because women's poetry in Ireland has so been established in relation to the kind of lack of women's voices historically mm -hmm. in the Irish literary canon. And so when you have a women's poetry event, for example, it's a hugely celebratory space. When you're mm -hmm. talking about a woman poet, it's a hugely celebratory space. And those are the spaces where it's hardest to bring in class because it's seen as impolite. It's seen like you're interrupting. You're not appreciating. So you actually, um, you're, you're dealing with that. But uh, one, one event that I was at that, that I, <laughs> I found really, really interesting was when Paula Meehan was the chair of Irish poetry. She, her last address, it was in the National Gallery. And she said something to, to the kind of, um, somebody asked her a question about the criticism of her poetry. Jesus, it might have even been me. I can't remember. <laughs> but, um, her response is what I do remember. And she said, like, she can actually tell the class background of a critic by what they say about her work. And I think that's really interesting because then we kind of have this idea of uh, the critic as somebody who kind of um, uh, facilitates the process of transcendence for the poet so that she may be seen as universally valuable. And it's just kind of, it really stuck with me and it, it shows up in my 
in my work as well, like that particular story and that particular um, anecdote. What also shows up is, you know, Polymehan's, you know, uh, she she did an event with Ivan Boland in the Abbey, uh, actually the Peacock Theatre, which is underneath. And she was talking about, you know, accent in Dublin and whether or not an accent is a politics, which is which is also an interesting thing because she has a really strong working class accent. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that we're 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 kind of in in that space when we we bring women poets together and we we have this kind of celebratory space that you know yes, class becomes something that's implied or an interruption. I mean, what you're saying there, I suppose, takes us takes us on maybe to another theme in our discussion which is which relates to feminism actually and because these issues and debates and the complexity of feminism and the kind of the ask and the sort of, sort of like the political project of feminism you know is you know there's a lot of debate there's a lot of internal discussion it's rich it's generative it's you know it's exciting but there's also real tensions between different notions of what the kind of if there is a unified feminist project and what what it should consist of and I suppose, I mean, one of the, the words I really like is this word praxis, because I think the word praxis to me, you know, breaks down kind of borders between scholarship and activism, between academic work and academic and individual commitments and collective action. And I think your work is kind of an exemplar of praxis because there is such a strong line of continuity between your biography, your academic interests, your teaching, your research. You know, there's such a strong mutual interchange and kind of connection between those things. And that really plays out in terms of your your doctoral research and your work on the archive, which we're going to talk about. Um, and at the moment, you're you're sort of you're writing a book, you're completing a book um, for Liverpool University Press called Women Writing the Margins, Working Class Writing and Activism in Ireland's Second, Fa- Second Wave Feminist Movement. And in that book, you're looking very closely at working class feminist groups from the 1980s, you know, from 1980s into the 1990s, I'm kind of guessing. Um, and I suppose what you're doing, I think, by doing that is really calling our attention to a very under-recognized form of feminism and it was a form of feminism that emerged from working class communities and that was strongly present in working class communities, particularly during the 1980s. So, again, I don't know to what extent the listeners would be aware of this history. So as a kind of a starting point for a discussion, it'd be great if you could tell us like, what were these women's groups? You know, where were they? Who was in them? What were they trying to do? Kind of, where were they located? Why do they emerge? I mean, it's just such an interesting story. So I think even just like the kind of the descriptive detail of it would be really interesting. Well, I'll give you like one story of how they emerged, because I think it's funny how some that interviews like this and conversations like this kind of come full circle. So like if you consider like the 1970s and 80s, uh, like it was time of massive recession in Ireland. And literally what that did was um, because our welfare system um, was 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 so heavily relied upon. Okay. So there were communities in, in the North inner city in North Dublin who went from like 80% employment to almost, you know, 30 or 40%. So what happens in that kind of scenario is that, um, you become welfare reliant. So you had like mass, massive communities where people were unemployed and they were relying on welfare. The problem is because our constitution was like holding so fast to the idea of, um, male breadwinner. And the woman's place in the home is that the woman was not entitled to a welfare payment of her own, right? Um, and I think this context is really, really important because it meant that 
when you have an unofficial status within a symbol within a system like that, that is intention with it is intention, right? So it, ha- it has attention with your actual social responsibilities. And um, so you're supposed to be the manager of a household. You are kind of, you know, uh, within that culture, you're supposed to be in charge of the bills, the kids clothes for school, the books, you know, all of those kinds of things, the daily running of a household. But you're too far removed from the levers of actual um, responsibility to actually carry out those tasks. So that's the first tension um, that working class women were experiencing during that time. The, the real interesting part is that when you do have that unofficial status, right? So you're not ent- legally entitled to engage at all with the welfare system. Um, it actually pus- pushes you much further into the system. So what happens is that women are constantly at health centres, constantly in welfare offices, but they're only um, they're only accommodated within those settings through emergency measures, supplementary measures, special accommodations. And these measures required women to tell stories. Working class women were constantly in their daily lives telling their stories two, three, four times a week at these local centres in order to get supplementary welfare payments. Right. So for whatever reason, I mean, in her book, Women in Poverty, Mary Daly has some incredible statistics about the amount of the kind of number of men who weren't actually handing over what was called the woman's share, right, to run the household. And so you already kind of have this like massive culture of storytelling, right? But what's happening is that within that process, you're kind of stigmatized, right? Your story is not really your story. You're repeating that story. You feel shamed by your story. I mean, the the there's beautiful uh, poems in the archive about, you know, where women uh, compare the welfare officer to this like priest-like figure. Um, you know, the, it, they're in, the, they're comparing the welfare office uh, booth to, you know, a confession box. Um, so the way that the imagination then ends up responding to these embodied experiences is quite beautiful. Um, so I think if if you look at why women's groups are started, it was really out of necessity in, in terms of that material reality. Um, and also they, they kind of provide, pr- provided what I call an affective itinerary. I used that term before. But so that affect, right, of shame or stigma, and it's an affect because you feel it in your body. You're not really processing it fully as an emotion yet. But there's an affective itinerary that, that kind of happens where you have shame and stigma in the welfare office. You're telling your story all the time. And then you find the women's group and you repeat. Right. So you're actually um, you're telling the story of the story that you told. And um, then what happens is you start to talk about how having a space to tell your story is really important. And I, I think that's crucial because class conscious emer- class consciousness emerges when you realize the impact of the practice, right? So you actually talk about how this practice is impacting your life. I have this space. I was able to tell my story. I actually feel better. I I'm actually feel healthier. I feel more happy. I'm more at peace, you know? So the, the actual material impact of those spaces was noted and talked about. And I think that's what really builds class consciousness. Um, and so there is a lot in the archive and especially in those early times about the state, about policing, about welfare state, about uh, education, about the education system and all reflections on it being classist. And this concept of class comes up 
all the time. They are working class women. The idea of feminism comes up, the idea of being working class feminists as well. Um, but I, th- I think there's, there's two things I'll say about that. And the, the first is that we're in the con, we're in the context of deindustrialization and, and massive recession. And so at the same time, the state is, uh, creating these kind of new, uh, back to work schemes or education schemes, right? And so these women are like, we've been meeting anyway. We might have been at the side of the, you know, soccer field or we might have been coming over to our house for tea. Now there's some funding. Why don't we kind of make the most of this? And, um, and so that's what happened in Kabarak. And that's how the Kabarak Women's Writing Group was started. Um, it was through one of those FOSS schemes or back to education schemes, community, community education schemes. And they ended up publishing, um, a lot through, through that scheme. Um, the, the issue and when we look back, okay, so we know that there was a women's movement at that time. The problem is, is that if you are under resourced, right, it's really hard to be, um, for you, for you to be attributed the status of a movement. So, you might have, you had Kilbarak, you had Crumlin, you had Kulak, you had Ballymun, you had uh, the North Wall, um, you had Ballybach. So there were so many of these writing groups happening and taking place. You had Amiens Street, right? But none of them knew about each other. And this is the real key thing in terms of when we actually understand and we can look back and say, oh, wow, you remember that working class women's movement? I remember that publishing movement? You remember that movement of activism? Well, no, we don't, because if they don't know about each other and they're under-resourced, I, I, and I, I think that that's really a key point. It's like that under-resourcing really makes it really difficult to understand, uh, the st- to be able to kind of hold the status of a movement or feel that kind of uh, idea of a movement. But on the flip side... <laughs> Um, you know, there's this idea that working class women didn't engage with feminism because, you know, they had like held conventional beliefs or actually maybe, you know, at that particular time, like second wave feminism actually aligned with a massive recession. So, and, and people don't talk about that, right? People don't talk about the significance of unemployment in the, in the creation of working class women's uh, pub- publishing boom or community publishing boom. Because I think the, the kind of standard, and I've seen this in lots of social science research, the standard idea is that if you have a community that is, um, is being annihilated, right? In terms of its culture of work, right? In terms of what it's been used to, um, like these communities were being, that what happens is, um, they close off. I think, uh, Valerie Walkerdine calls it a second skin. And actually, I think she's referencing somebody else when she says that, uh, and earlier. Uh, social scientist who I can't remember the name of right now. But what's interesting about what happened in the 1980s is that that (laughs) these women were, uh, they did not create a second skin. They were completely bold. They were completely brazen. So one of the, uh, one of my favorite moments of my, my research with Kathleen um, was when she told me about, um, you know, the women's group in Kilbarrick signing up to Audre Lorde's newsletter. That she would um, publish, and Audre Lorde is a working class black woman poet and critic from the United States, who was based at that time in New York. Um, and so they signed up to this newsletter, and they used to get they used to teach from it. And um, there was they heard the newsletter came one day, and there was a conference being held in New York to kind of uh, talk about Audre Lorde's life when she was still alive. And 
Kathleen O'Neill ended up getting uh, her, her the women together and she, she wrote a letter to the organising committee explaining that these were a group of women from North Dublin on welfare who had been subscribing to Order Lord's newsletter and reading her poetry and they really wanted to come to the conference but they had they hadn't two pennies to live together. At that time, I think Kathleen was surviving on £60 a week with six children in the house. So um, she ended up getting her flight, flight flights paid, getting picked up at the airport in New York and getting driven to the hotel and sitting with Audre Lorde and talking about working class women's activism in Dublin. And that is, in my, in my own feeling, right, it's a trans-peripheral feminism, right? We talk about transnational feminism all the time. But transnational feminism happens when networked groups in a certain country are are with networked groups in another. And so, but what happens when there's uh, people on the periphery, women on the periphery? Very, very rarely um, do we get to find those nuggets of history where they actually connected. Um, and so I, th- I think it's a really beautiful story because it kind of tells the story of people who are absolutely under-resourced, absolutely <laughs> stressed out of their bins, finding the time to make those connections. And I and I think it's a really beautiful story. And I wouldn't have come across it if I hadn't, I don't think, developed the relationship I had with Kathleen O'Neill, who was the uh sorry, the facilitator writing group, creative writing group facilitator for the Kabar um women's writing group. But that's kind of another thing, I think, because you know Research practice is an interesting thing when you're doing field work, when you're doing interviews. And I, I had a lot of issues getting my, my methodology approved. And I think the reason was because they were like, well, why do you only have like two or three points of contact here? And I think, I, I don't know whether I'm going to call it long research, long research or long practice, but I think when you're dealing with communities that are really, really hesitant, uh, to engage with academia or engage with research culture, it does take longer. And you have to be really aware of the boundary between where your friendship is and where your research is. And um, like most of the times I met up with Kathleen, we were meeting up as friends. And and so I think that, again, when we talk about the significance of working class academics and academia, that is something that I talked about in my research methodology. We need to stop. We need to kind of change this because otherwise we're not going to be able to get these really important histories back. Wow, that's amazing, actually. <laughs> I hadn't known about that story about Kathleen going over to Audre Lorde. That's, that's really incredible. But also, I mean, what you said about like, working class women telling stories in order to survive and to, and to navigate the kind of welfare systems, but how that then becomes the basis for a kind of a, a movement that doesn't know it's a movement, perhaps, you know, and for the sort of explosion of kind of creative work you know, that's centered around poetry. And again, we'll talk about that in a minute, but I think that's quite an extraordinary sort of kind of how how these things happen, you know, and it does raise questions about, you know, is there osmosis at work? Is there something in the culture at the time or what is happening that actually kind of makes that, makes that happen? Do you want to jump in there again? Yeah, so I just wanted to jump in really quickly because Kathleen O'Neill wrote a book about that practice, about the significance of telling stories Um in women's groups and having that space to talk about the kind of uh, the violence of forced narration, I think I, I call it sometimes in my PhD, uh, when you're in contact with the welfare state. And she called it telling it like it is. Right. So that's what the book was called. Um, so 
I, I, I don't know if you mentioned it, but I, I'm recently back from Howard University in Washington, D.C., where I did a Fulbright Fellowship. And the reason that I did that Fulbright Fellowship was because I found a book about uh, black working class women's um, mo- uh, welfare rights movement in the 1980s. And the book was called Tell It Like It Is. And I knew, I knew from that moment I was onto something. I said this, the, I, I'm like, I knew it. I just felt it. And the more I read into it, the more I realized that it was the exact same process. It produced the exact same kinds of poems. I mean, the poems are so similar and um, the practice is so similar. And so I, I, I was able to go to Howard University and access the welfare uh, rights archive there and read the poetry of those women and learn about their practice and be able to like, kind of draw and extend that transperipheral kind of connection that I think Kathleen actually started with Audre Lorde in the 1980s. Um, and it's funny when she met, when she met Audre Lorde, I forgot to say, you know, I asked, I was like, what did you say to her? Like, what did you talk about? This is amazing. I was like, what? And it's, she said it so casually, you know, we were in the, um, we were in the crash, um, uh, section of the Kabarak Women's Writing uh, Center the, or um, the Kabarak um, uh, Center. And uh, it, the significance of the creche, I think, is really important because when it started, when the group started, they would have kids like crawling around their legs and they couldn't concentrate and stuff. We were in the creche and she was like, oh, yeah, I met Audre Lord once. And I was like, what? She's like, oh, yeah, she flew me to New York. I was like, OK. I said, what did you say to her? And she said, well, like, well, I told her the fact that, you know, when I go to feminist conferences and events in Ireland, like, and I want to talk about class, I start to have like, um, an anxiety attack or a panic attack. Cause, cause whenever Kathleen did bring up class at these feminist conferences and events, uh, she was shot down and she was, re- it, it was really, really awful. Some of the responses. So she did have that embodied kind of feeling like, I, I know I want to speak about class, uh, Audrey, but. I have this anxiety feeling or this panic feeling at these conferences when I, when I go to talk about it. And Audre Lorde turned around to her and said, Kathleen, that's not a panic attack. That's a class attack. And so Kathleen comes back, gets all the women together in Dublin and uh, writes a play called Class Attack based on her conversation with Audre Lorde, where she, where she absolutely um, kind of goes to town on the kind of representation of social class in Ireland at the time. So they, so, you know, uh, she talks about, I think it was called the Tuesday. Uh, some of the listeners might know, but it was a program where uh, they go into people's houses who are poor and kind of look in the presses and ask them how much money they have for the week, kind of like uh, what they call poverty porn now. Um, and so she's critiquing this kind of stuff, but I think it's a really interesting play class attack. And, um, I got the only video VHS tape of it from Kathleen's attic and made copies, digital copies and uh, DVD copies. So, so it can be preserved, but I, I think it's a really cool thing because I think it is the product of a trans peripheral feminist praxis. I really like that concept, actually trans peripheral. It, you know, it makes, it makes a lot of sense and what, what, what kind of, what allows it to happen and, and, and you know, how these different kind of, shoots of connections start sprouting. It's really, really interesting. I wonder, is that program that you're talking about, is it the one, this man who would go around and interview people, you know, at the, the Tuesday Files. Sorry? The Tuesday Files, that's what it was Tuesday called. Tuesday Files, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I remember that one, but I remember there was a, sh- was a program whereby this man would walk around and he would, you know, meet people outside a dole office and be like, you know, 
why are you, you know, why are you here? Um, that sort of, you know, kind of intrusive questioning, which was, yeah, a kind of precursor of the kind of more general poverty porn or poverty porn that began to emerge in the in the two thousands. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, Kathy Lynch has has been a really, really important figure in in community development landscape in Ireland as well. And I suppose that, I mean, like the time that you're writing about in the nineteen eighties. I suppose it's, there's lots there's lots of reasons it's interesting, but one one of the reasons that you know it is interesting is that at that time governments began to find community as a solution to social problems. So there was this kind of emphasis on how through personal development and community based self help that we could get around problems like. Poverty, which was now recalled, now rechristened as social exclusion, for example. There were ideas about active citizenship, which kind of suggested some kind of interventionist partnering state, but in effect, maybe also downplayed, you know, downplayed class politics. And also, I suppose, through the funding of community projects. There were new opportunities for the state to kind of reach into working class communities to talk about partnership, but also there are elements of control, there are elements of surveillance, there are, there, there are you know, um, elements of compulsion that are going on there. There is also, I suppose, kind of like supposed concerns about the disorganized community and the unprofessional community group. So there's this kind of landscape of ostensible benevolence towards the community sector and community groups. A lot of it is coming through the European Union as well. So there's a kind of a broader transnational, international kind of agenda at play there. And this means that there is a kind of a funding and there's a policy context within which these these groups emerge as well. Um, And I suppose it's an interesting place to be, I think, because, as you said, the women's groups are saying we need we need we need money. We need to do stuff. Did we? You know, we need, but all, funding always kind of creates a certain kind of power relationship as well. And so, I would be interested maybe to talk a little bit about that. These these women's groups. How do they negotiate and manage and navigate these kind of funding kind of streams and opportunities? And and under condi- under what conditions? And what kind of things that they have to do in order to be able to survive in this environment? Again, thank you so much. <laughs> Such a great question. Um, yeah, I think like if we look at the historical account, right? If we look at the historical account of the second wave feminist movements in Ireland, why are we missing voices like Kathleen O'Neill, right? Why are we missing those voices? Like that group traveled all over the country. She went and down to Moira Bradshaw in Cork and she, they spoke and they talked about their, their, their publications and, and, you know, the concept of if you can talk, you can write. And it was really, they really, really did make an impact. But in the historical accounts, we don't hear Kathleen saying things like, you know, class and gender. That was our thing. You know, we, we, we were, we went to every feminist conference. We, we did this, we did that, you know, like we don't have those accounts. And I think, um, the reason is because of the funding structure. So unfortunately, with Ireland's like uh, ascension to the EU, you know, with the EU poverty um, programs, both one and two, what happened was like our funding discourse in Ireland completely uh, kind of changed and uh, 
that concept of inclusion and exclusion replace class, like replace the concept of class and class inequality. And with the concept of inclusion and exclusion, there was a real focus, um, as you talk about in your own work, on on the idea of the individual. Right. So the individual needs to be helped and the individual kind of, you know, putting the problem of poverty and inequality on an on on uh, an individual subject rather than systemic. So we, we get this removal of a systemic uh, critique with those EU poverty projects. And so if you have an entire movement that is based on a systemic critique at its heart, at its core, and the only way they're funded is through programs that completely undermine and submerge the idea of a systemic critique, then of course it's difficult. So you're on multiple platforms. And this is what, what, I, what I think is really, really interesting about trying to reclaim a working class women's history is that it's not as easy as going to the library and finding the books. I mean, some of the stuff that I reclaimed was in institutionalized archives, in the FOSS archives, in the Combat Poverty Agency archives. This is where the poetry is. Right. It's not, you know, you, when I went into the UCD library, when I started this work as a PhD student, I found one poem, uh, from that group, but I found it in the social science section of the library. Right. I didn't find it in the literature section of the library. And that's because the, the funding was for jobs. The funding was for reduction of addiction. So you had to have those outputs. Right. A poetry book was not an output. Right. You know, a book of poetry was not an output. And, and Moyer Bradshaw got in big trouble for that as well in the 1980s. You know, when I met her in Cork, she was talking about uh, going to one of the FOSS, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, quality review sessions or something. And uh, they were like, OK, what did you do? And she pulled up this publication that they had made. And he was like, what are you doing spending our money on poetry? <laughs> like and so. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't get, it doesn't get, um, included in our literary history. Um, it's outside of it. And so it's really hard to bring it back in. And the reason it's really, really hard to bring it back in, um, is because of those, is because of those funding structures. And also, you know, the, the frustration of the, those women who were writing those funding applications, knowing that they were going to do something completely differently different to what they were actually stating. So in the official record of this state, what the Kilbaric Women's Writing Group outputs were are is completely different to what their actual outputs were. And there was a brilliant conference, and I'm so lucky to have the transcript from it, in, in Maynooth in, I think it was 1989, and it was like, uh, what were, it was kind of reviewing the 80s and saying kind of where are we going to go now? I'm sure you're probably familiar with it. And, and one of the resounding things was like, is there any chance that we can actually say what we're doing? <laughs> you know, that was the real thing. They were like, we need to start being able to say what we are actually doing and what we actually want to do, which is a systemic critique of capitalism and to smash the patriarchy, which is basically what they were doing. And they wanted to be able to say it, but they couldn't because if they said it, they wouldn't get the funding. And that's why we don't have that's why we don't have the historical record, I think. I mean, I, and it's, I mean, you could put blame on XYZ account or XYZ researcher, but at the end of the day, if the official record says X, but what was done was actually Y, you know, the only way to do it is by going and talking to people. And that's a long process. 
you know, and it takes time and it takes trust building and it takes relationships and it's a different kind of research. And again, going back to why do we need working class academics? I think that's why we need them because we understand that. And, you know, when I first started, you know, going and, and really trying to dig, I spent most of the time talking about myself. Who are you? Where are you from? Why are you doing this? And and that's another kind of research re- research norm or oral history norm that kind of had to be broken in, in this project is that, you know, you don't talk too much in an interview. You know, you're the interviewer, not the interviewee. So keep your words to a minimum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't really allow for the fact that actually, no, this is a total different kettle of fish, what, what I'm trying to do here and what I have to do. Yeah, and it's it's it's, and I don't, I don't want to be completely depressing about this, but and I, and I know when, like what you're describing in terms of the kind of control and the sort of having to do stuff under the radar to kind of creatively re-engineer like programs and processes to do the work you want to do, but still try and carry off the semblance of doing what you're supposed to do. I think that you know now in community development and now in the kind of that's even more restrictive than ever before. I mean, that like, so the kind of halcyon days of the FOSS in the 1980s might seem as a kind of a, a moment of freedom in comparison to what, what we have now, which is whereby, you know, community groups are required to kind of return key performance indicators that are kind of almost preset and preordained for them. So it's, it's, it's an area of con- where control has even gotten more intense. Yeah, so... I- I think that's really interesting. I, I just wanted to mention too that it's 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 also the time frame of funding projects like that, and where where the state kind of wants to tick a box or wants to achieve something to put on some kind of report for next year. That the 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 kind of the the shortness, the short nature of those funding uh, programs in the eighties was a real problem too, because the momentum and we're talking about. Uh, being having the status of a movement, yes, the idea of being under resourced and not having a network is one, but also that kind of. Um, short time frame was a real problem to to kind of in in terms of building momentum absolutely and 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 i suppose the other point that you're making really really strongly is that what the record shows makes a difference you know that if there is no historical record or if the historical record is is incomplete or it's partial then Later, we don't know about it, you know, or it becomes easier for there to be a kind of received wisdom about w- what was actually happening in the women's movement. Yeah, and I think like that that's really a part of the methodology of the project. So if, if, if you're going into a system where the official record says X, then what you're doing is actually you're going into an archive, but you need in order to understand that archive. So if I want to understand the provenance of a poem that exists in a combat poverty agency publication, for example. Right. I need to go back to Kathleen and I and she tells me exactly how that poem ended up there. And so what actually happens is that her accounts and our conversations that I recorded become part of an archive in, in their own right. And, and I think that that's how you start to kind of I mean, the misrepresentation of social movements of underrepresented communities is is a problem. Right. But the way that you correct that is you engage in a really collaborative uh, archival project you know, where the voices of those involved in creating the records are involved then in assessing them after the fact, uh, institutional records included. I think, you know, especially some of the, you know, comments I I was able to gather around the concept of self-help at that time were really valuable to me. You know, having women being like, oh, we knew. Like, 
you know, we knew that this concept of self-help and we knew that that, you know, the idea of self-help kind of in this new world order of there's no systemic issue here. Let's not, not critique capitalism, but let's fund umpteen programs for us for self-help in poor communities so that these poor people can then go and then be good again. So like whatever. Um, but they knew, they knew the politics of it and they understood it and they were really pissed off about it. So to get some of that coming to me in an interview space and in a conversation and them saying like, we don't want self-help, we're fine, we want a systemic critique of capitalism. And Emma, what you're describing there then, that's, that's what collaborative archival process is. That it's, it's, it's that kind of where you sort of try and track and trace maybe specific pieces of work. And then you enter the, into these dialogue with people who will know and maybe can understand and through the kind of recollection and, and talking together that you've been, that, am I right with that? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, I, I think it, it's really, really important that, you know, we, we have this official record and what that was the result of kind of a, a state mandate denial of systemic inequality. And that's the official record. But in order to understand that record, we don't understand it and we can't understand it because we don't have the tools. So creating that tool, creating that tool and, and, and making it part of that archive as well. And how you create that tool is building that kind of collaborative relationship and having conversations on the provenance of a published piece. And that, that's all, that's, it becomes really important when you're talking about, um, institutional archives like FOSS publications or combat poverty publications where, you know, you'd have a poem and you, or you'd have a publication about poverty. Um, and, you know, I, so what I would do is I would go and I would read that and I would find out who's involved. And then I'd go and I'd chat with them and I'd talk to them about how this got created. Whose idea was it? Did they approach you or did you approach them? Who was involved in the research design? What was the, what was the desired outcome? And so it, you, you get a much richer understanding of, of the landscape. And I think it's it's really important. But again, as I say, it takes a long time. I can imagine. And I can imagine it's also like people move away and there are all kinds of, you know, events that can happen in people's lives that make it difficult. So all of this would, of course, kind of hamper the ease which this can be done, you know. So, yeah, it's 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 really interesting. And I suppose, I mean, I want to focus now on the poetry and the writing because I think that's really important. And I mean... Like, it's interesting to me that, I mean, like Kilbarrick Local Education for Adult Renewal, which is clear, it's also known as clear, and that's where Kathleen was kind of really instrumental. Kathleen was interested in the development of that. Um, and, and Kathleen contributed a poem to that, you know, book, Women in Poverty in Ireland, Mary Daly's book, which is really important kind of entry point into the discussion about poverty in Ireland and the kind of feminization of poverty in Ireland and the gendered way that, of experiences of poverty in Ireland. But also the fact that a book about poetry in Ireland includes, you know, is is interesting. You know, it's 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 not what you would expect. Do you know, you know? Um, and 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 probably isn't even that common now. Do you know what I mean, or maybe even rarer still? Um, so I suppose that speaks to certain kinds of creativity, kind of understandings of what kind of culture and poetry could do and be, and what its place was, and. That might not have been broadly received across Irish society in general, but obviously there's this kind of movement, there's these groups in working class areas who are kind of rewriting the rules around poetry in some way. And obviously Kilbarrick plays an absolutely crucial role in, 
in making that happen. But there are other there are other communities, there are other places too. And there's this kind of a wider network. So would you tell us a bit about that, this kind of movement towards poetry and the kind of the the embedding of poetry in communities and the use of poetry for 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 all kinds of modes of expression. Do you know like and and you know what was happening and what form it took and, and maybe why it was happening as well, do you think? Yeah, uh, thank you again. Um, yeah, I think when we come to the archive and when you look at the archive, it, it is really, really vast. There are hundreds, there are thousands and thousands of pages of work in there. And and I guess through the research, um, and my own my own mother has written poetry all her life and she uh, has a box under the bed too. <laughs> um, so I knew that people wrote. I knew that working class people wrote. I knew that that was happening. And I don't think if, if it wasn't for my mother, this project never would have happened, never would have existed. So I always had her as an example, you know. Um, but if you look at the archive and then you, you think about like, uh, form and genre, like there's not, there's one working novel in that archive in that entire archive, actually two, sorry. Um, and I think I, I was really interested in that. Like why poetry? Like why is there so much poetry? And I mean, from a literary perspective, you know, um, like in terms of, of the form and what it allows, I think poetry is really interesting in terms of capturing an intensity um or or in a moment and so in terms of that kind of effective itinerary or the moment of that experience in the welfare office i think it became very important uh form and it it kind of it 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 kind of lent itself to to what was needed at that particular moment but what you find a lot of the time is women would start off writing poetry and then short stories were used to kind of systemically kind of analyze what was going on. So the poem might be in a, a moment of intensity or embodied emotional experience. And then later the short story would kind of um, be a more kind of critical or systemic look, um, often mapping kind of, okay, I, I have this, this emotional experience that the poem mapped, but like now I'm going to go back and map um, an effective history of class. Okay, so then you might have a short story about, you know, uh, like Carmel Jennings, for instance, is a really good example. Who who she's in the archive, and her first poem is uh, "The Welfare Queue," and it's brilliant. And then she goes on to write a, po- a short story called "The Confirmation Dress," and they're both really similar because the confirmation dress is, uh, you know, um, she's in school and she's too poor to uh, have her dress bought, so the nuns are going to make it, and uh, she's brought up into the the front of the class and the nuns start measuring her um and so it's that moment that kind of classes her you know it's 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 nothing else it's the experience itself that kind of classes her and and uh, is her experience of classism and so what you have is that kind of that's why I, in in my book I talk about poetry as a gateway <laughs> literary form um but that's the literary response of why poetry. Um, you know, I think if we move to the practical material reality of why poetry, and I, when I asked Kathleen, I said, why is there so much poetry? You know, why is this a dominant thing that you were doing? And she said, well, it, it's very simple. Poetry was cheap. You didn't need a typewriter. Um, you know, if you didn't have many resources, it was something you could do quickly you had an idea and this is also something that Audre Lorde talks about which is also differentiates from uh, Virginia Woolf's kind of comment on a room of one's own when she's writing her novel it's like what what do and in what way does class actually impact uh, form and genre and kind of what's available so I thought that was really interesting and I and I talk about it in um my book but also we have this idea that working class writing 
is just about class. And I, I want to talk about that as well, that working class writing is just socially realist writing. And it's not, right? And I think Fran Locke, who's a brilliant critic uh, based in London, talks about innovative poet, working class women's poetry. And, and her point is really, really strong. And because I saw this in my own mother, like my, my mom wouldn't just go to Tesco's and buy the dinner. My mom would go to Tesco's, Lidl, Aldi, Super Value, trying to find the special offers. Now, what that is, and this is just one example, but that is an example of having to be innovative. Your body is moving differently. You have to think differently. So that innovation, the materiality, the lived actual reality of that innovation um, shows up in poetry, working class women's poetry, which in turn can actually be quite ephemeral and can have different kind of pathways of movement. But in terms of the socially realist work that does talk about working class life, it is not just, um, you know, uh, you know, therapy or a documentation or, you know, um, it, it is political, absolutely, but it also has an aesthetics. It also has an aesthetic quality that you can analyze using your classic close reading techniques. So, and that's, and I know that that sounds so straightforward and simple, but it hasn't been done. And I think we're going back to your first question again in that, like, you really do need uh, a working class person to come along and say, okay, I'm going to do a close reading of Kathleen O'Neill's poem, but then I'm also going to talk about the kind of outside context and going to make it political because its intentions are. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it, it's interesting what you say there as well about the, the kind of materiality of poetry and the sort of intensity of it. I mean, there, I mean, there is like, there's a reason why people, you know, recite poetry at funerals, for example, because there's the kind of an intensity and immediacy of it that, you know, really does, you know, work in situations and it allows this kind of, I think, people to express kind of feeling in, in ways that, you know, relate them to other people as well. Do you, know, you know, but also I think that the idea that it's material, like having access to paper or a computer or these, you know, these are considerations which determine the kind of form that you adopt and what the form allows you to do and what it doesn't allow you to do. And I'm also really interested in 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 your point there in relation to you know, working class poetry doesn't always have to be socially realist. But I suppose one of the, the points that you make in your work is that, you know, if it wasn't for the likes of FOSS or adult education grants or the anti-poverty, this poetry probably or possibly would not have been worked together in, in collective spaces. You know, people might have been working on it individually. I don't know. But the, the kind of group element, the kind of the women's groups themselves wouldn't have existed. They possibly wouldn't have been able to, to have an output. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I just, you reminded me of something that is really important of what, what you're talking about is that in that communal space, so in the, in the space of a communal writing environment, what you find is that, especially when we're talking about that journey from, you know, the, the kind of state facing uh, story to the story being told in the women's group. Um, you get poems and you get stories that actually map their own genealogy. So you can actually see how the poem came to be, which I think is really interesting, right? So the welfare queue, for example, as a poem, when you read that poem, you know that that woman was here and now she's here. You can actually see why and how it got constructed. So I think that's also something really, really unique about, you know, working class writing. 
Yeah, that it doesn't it doesn't just happen to be presented in a group. There's, you know, the actual constitution of the poem itself relates to that relationships within it. That's really, really interesting. And I suppose what kind of strikes me then is that the that the arts council like aren't on the scene here, for example. Do you mean you know like there's so there's and and one of the difficulties is that like working class arts tend to be often kind of constructed as sort of therapy, as a sort of uh, kind of an antidote to sort of some kind of like social problems. Do you mean that there's a kind of these are these are they're kind of freighted with these responsibilities to kind of resolve social contradictions or to, you know, perform a kind of acts of therapy. But the actual kind of aesthetic dimensions, the expressive qualities, these are not the considerations that typically funders are interested in. So they are consigned to funding streams that are serving other purposes like, you know, against unemployment or whatever it is. And and I suppose that has implications for what we understand as the you know, like the you know the the kind of the canon of poetry in this country, and I think you have a lot to say about about these issues, Emma. So maybe I'll just let you jump in there. Yeah, like I think um, so, I, and I'm just going to go back to the archive in terms of when I what it, it, ways that you can kind of examine working class poetry. W- one thing is um, uh, seeing seeing how the actual the imagination responds to kind of affective experiences, bodily experiences, um, positions, like how you're positioned. So the welfare queue and off the wall are really good examples of that. But the idea of talk and how talk shows up in, in working class writing, you know, uh, it, it it's almost like sometimes the words appearing on the page as if as, as they would be spoken in everyday life. So I think um, talk was also a big part of the archive. And we actually have a section, we have a tab on the website called talk because it is really, really important to the constitution of working class writing and to the constitution of an archive. Um, you need to build relationships. You need to talk in order to be given that work. Um, and me and Sophie, you know, uh, and we have photographs on, on there as well of, of places that we've gotten work from. But, you know, I, we, we went around and myself and Sophie were putting up posters that just said, do you write you or your granny? And then we had a statement about working class culture and writing. And we said, working class communities have been writing for, we've, we've always written. Okay. We ever like, do you have a box under the bed was also another question on one of our posters, you know, and we just put them up in uh, churches, shops, local pubs. We put them on um, bus stations, uh, uh, you know, uh, bus shelters. And uh, we put them everywhere we could think of everywhere we could think of and we just kind of were like okay we'll see what happens I put my own personal phone number (laughs) on every single poster and uh, my email and then we just couldn't believe it like to this day we still really can't believe what happened as a result of that you know um and we spent you know all of COVID pretty much and after you know in people's sitting rooms um in their back sheds in you know meeting with them and telling them about the project and i think as well in terms of archival work with this kind of archival work such a neglected literary culture you can't just say grand you have a poem send it to me it doesn't work like that you have to go meet the person you have to go introduce yourself you have to talk to them about the project about why you want their work about why you think it's valuable um so again just another kind of uh thing to put in and and in terms of you know maybe reflecting on research cultures and 
and time frames and, and stuff like that. But um yes, yeah, sorry, I got carried away there when I started thinking about the archive, but no, no, and it, it's let's 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 just actually get get to the archive now and just like give it some 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 love and attention that it deserves, I think. Because I mean you've talked about you and Sophie and that's Sophie Meehan who you've 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 worked on the archive with and like it has an online presence, but my sense is that there's other materials that you also have which need to get on online. So there's a you know like this. So it's a work. I think it's a work in progress. But notwithstanding that, it is a really beautiful. It is a beautiful treasure trove. I mean, it's just it's it's beautiful, and there's a very distinctive look to it. There's a very strong emphasis on community and place within it. Um, in its existing iteration. It's it's primarily focused on Dublin, but I know you plan to go further afield. But there are like there's work from Sean McDermott Street, from Ballymont, from Mulhuddard, from Ballybock. You I mean from lots of areas of Dublin, and you've got sort of like newsletters on there from of the unemployed for the unemployed. Sort of you know you've got like poetry. There's short stories. There's you know scanned copies of old books that are in there as well. So maybe you can just tell us you know give the the listeners a sense of like. What is there? And, you know, you've talked a little bit about how it got there and where, where, like what you were trying to do and what's been, what the kind of process of bringing it together. Yeah, I maybe, maybe I'll start off about uh, talking about, you know, um, I've talked a little bit about the process of, of collecting all that work and, um, you know, <laughs> the ridiculous nature of my, uh, kitchen area where I'm sitting right now, which is just, I have all the hard copies of everything that was digitized. Um, but, I'll start off by talking about the launch of the archive. So we we thought that that was really important that people who had submitted were um, brought together. And one one of the aims of the archive, and and this is something that Sophie spoke really well about, because I'm not a writer. Sophie is is so she is a working class poet, but she always thought that you know no one on my street writes. I'm the only one who writes, and I do this, and I'm going to do it in secret. And we we noticed that that was a, a theme that we kind of something that we came up upon time and time again with people who had submitted that um so there is not one item on that in that archive that was previously published by a publisher right i think that's striking <laughs> um everything in that archive is either self published or unpublished work and i think it's the reason why it's a living archive and more than an archive is because the, 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 I suppose the social project of it in terms of like building community was that. And that's why there's such a strong uh, emphasis on place. It's not just because place is also emphasized in working class poetry, which it is, but it's also that you can go on there. And if you're from Sean McDermott Street or the Liberties or Mulhuddard or whatever, and you're writing, you can click in and see who else from your community is writing. And for me, like one of the, the main things I wanted to achieve is, you know, all that <laughs> injustice, I suppose, of not being able to mark a movement of working class writing and not being able to actually uh, show it and honour it. This kind of does that. I think it shows that there is a massive movement of working class writing, both hi historically, because there's so much um, in there from the 60s, 70s and 80s when there was that huge boom in community publishing. But there's also stuff right up until the present day and so it's it's trying to unisolate and and it's trying to network under resourced writers and also like give them a platform that, so that we feel part of a community and we can feel proud to to be writing and to be producing like you know uh, be involved in kind of cultural production 
Um, but the problem at the moment, I suppose, is that, you know, we, we, we owe a lot to the Arts Council for, for giving us, uh, funding to, to bring people on board. So to give, uh, you know, Sophie the ability to take time off to do this work with me and to pay for a digital artist who, who did these brilliant illustrations. So if you go onto the website, uh, it's not just a list of town names in Dublin. It's actually uh, Anya O'Hara, our digital artist, was able to create, like, go into those communities and get a sense of them, and then pick out a landmark and 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 do like pencil sketch. So each 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 one is an image, you know. Um. So the Arts Council allowed us to kind of get that done, and and uh, Poetry Ireland helped us at the very end when we really needed help with um digitization and scanning of our documents because we just got so much more than we thought we ever would. But now we're in a position where we have no funding and the archive is currently kind of unaccessible. So it is accessible in a way. So, But if you type in working class writing archive, you can click on it, but it'll say danger, danger, and don't come into this website. It's dangerous. You can go to the advanced settings and, and click on the link and get, get drawn to the website. But what we really need now is funding so that we can sort that out. But I suppose the main thing is the email box, so the submission box, basically, for for the archive. So after it says, if you want to submit work, please contact us. And we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of submissions from people who, and, and it really stands, I think it's a, it's a testament to the archive because it's people who've never talked about their work before, never mentioned their work to anybody who are saying, I write poetry, here it is. Do you think it's okay? And we're saying, yeah, we think it's okay. But I, can't, we, we, I don't have the resources, you know, so I'd love somebody to give me a big pile of money so I can employ somebody to extend the archive um, outside of Dublin um, because it really needs it really needs to be extended because mo- so much of the submissions are from outside Dublin. We've got, um, you know, Cork, Limerick, Sligo, Longford, Roscommon, Donegal. Like we, it's all over the island, and I really it would be great to be, extend the archive and represent that. Fantastic, yeah. I mean, it's it really speaks to a sort of a vibrant kind of culture of poetry as well, doesn't it? Which is, which is really great because like. You know, of all the literary art forms, poetry might be the one that lives most in people's hearts and part of their, but it's the one that kind of figures least prominently in terms of the discussions about literature. So it's kind of interesting that there is this kind of, you know, like kind of contradiction maybe between the kind of theory and practice. You're going to read some poetry for us now, I think. Is that right? Yeah. So there's, um, yeah, you've, you've, you're going to read, I think, three poems, if I'm right. Um, and it's, it's from a writer that, it's featured on the archive and that you you said that you you're really thinking a lot about this person's work at the moment so maybe you'll you'll talk us through that and who this person yeah so um yeah i'm just i'm delighted to be able to read some of joe's work today uh so so i'm gonna uh read some of joe mcclure's work so um joe uh had already passed away by the time we started this project and we got we his daughter and uh, grandson reached out to us and actually said my granddad published i think he published five collections self published right so you know sending his work in and getting you know a book sent back um so no publisher but self published work and uh, i love it because there's a huge culture in uh, america in, of uh, writing about work and this is a project that i'm kind of embarking on at the moment which is I really want to have Ireland's first ever anthology of worker writing. Um, and I want it to be an anthology that uh, 
uh, asks for poems about work. So uh, at the moment, I'm based in ATU, which you mentioned at the beginning, and the two of my students are involved in publishing a, a kind of a journal of of writing that's linked to the university. But what I've done is I've uh, put a, put a photo of Joe and one of his poems on a poster, and I've uh, posted it all around the university um, to try and get people to write about work. Um, but I think it's the kind of the beginning of a project of a much wider project that I think could really be linked to um, perhaps linked to COVID-19, maybe um, uh, expressions of work during during that uh, time, but also beyond that. Um, so I already have a poem from a tunneler. I have a poem from a truck driver. And yeah, I'm hoping to get ma- many, many more uh, poems for that project and just see kind of where it goes but it started from Joe's work that this is where the kernel of that idea started because he really kind of brings you into this space of the factory floor and we don't really have that poetry history in Ireland they definitely do have it in the United States and they have it in England and Scotland but we don't have it here but we do have it we just don't know about it so I'm gonna um start off by reading the Galvo. So Joe was from uh, Ballybrack, but he wa- worked in a galvanising steel factory. And um, So this poem is called The Galvo. The great pot spews molten lead and zinc. The dipper stands with tongs and salt as smoke lurks among the rafters. The pickler delves into the acid and coughs, hands dyed brown. The mobile crane hovers like a giant vulture, then swoops to grapple with the heated metal. Common pigeons thrive the stanchions while men hose spittle and sweat into the drain. So next I'm going to um, read a poem, another factory poem of Joe's (laughs) called Industry. Sheets of steel guillotined, rubber gloves handling rivets, cone-shaped, pieces sparked together, cloth-covered nylon feet, heavy Levi's sweating on a seat, the hand that rocks the cradle, making buckets. And then the last one of Joe's that I'm going to read is actually a poem he wrote about O'Connell Street. Dublin in childhood was slow. Now it screeches about me with unbelievable mechanism. On a crowded bus, my eyes wobble as a grim-faced poet glides past, obsessed with failure. Larkin stands in cast, unmenacing and coldly decorative, his fervour forgotten. That's fantastic. I mean, I can see why you were inspired seek poems about work because the actual kind of materiality of the of the work itself comes through so strongly there doesn't it and yeah and obviously the kind of eye for metal you know even like the larkin statue of metal it's so interesting isn't it yeah yeah so i think that there hasn't you're saying there hasn't been a an anthology about poems about no right and and it's funny because um I live in a working class town. The The university I, I work in has the highest number of working class students in Ireland. So I, I'm from a working class community and I, 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 I've been beginning these conversations with, with people and I have, I've actually written my, my own, my first uh, piece of creative work about working in Aldi. I worked in Aldi for years and that was amazing experience for me. Like I felt for the first time that I could actually write about something and, and it was good. So, um, 
I just kind of wanted to bring that feeling, I suppose. Uh, and that's all inspired by Joe. So I wanted to bring that feeling. But when I do talk to people about, will you give me a poem about your work? And they're like, what are you talking about? I don't write poetry. And what I do is I show them Joe's poem and then they go, ah, Jesus, yeah. You know, and, and some of them have actually said, oh, I, I do have this actually. Is that it? <laughs> and they've actually ever, they've already written a poem similar, uh, you know, in similar in, in, in style and similar in form. So. So I think it's an exciting it's a project I'm excited about. I think it has like really interesting as well, kind of uh, interdisciplinary potential with like in especially if we were looking at poems about work in terms of the, the pandemic, in terms of the relationship between um, expression. So poetry as a document of experience in a public health crisis, but also as a as a way of um, understanding and navigating it. And so, yeah, I. I'm excited about the project. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and also in terms of maybe just as we're finishing up, but just like circling back to what you talked about earlier about the kind of embodied nature of experience, the kind of working class experiences embodied, that's borne out in Joe's poetry, really, isn't it? Because there is a really strong physicality in what's written there. And there is a sense of, I mean, not all working class poetry is to speak to that, but I often think. But when we think about poetry, we kind of sometimes dwell on the meaning in the sense of some kind of, you know, wordy, written, conceptual kind of meaning. But actually what what you've been describing as well, it's it's not always meaning in that sense. You know, meaning can take very many forms. And, you know, that kind of physical, embodied kind of, you know, they're really, really important dimensions of it as well, you know. Um yeah, because I think, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's so interesting what you just said. And I, I think it's really, really true is that in, in those poems, he's, he, he doesn't need to do too much, you know, uh, it, the, the form of, of what he does and how he works and where his body is and how it feels the that, that physicality and that, that kind of materiality, uh, the, the formal materiality of that takes a lot of the job of meaning making away from him in a way but he still needs to do it you know he still needs to um hold it in regard he still needs to invest it mm. and um there is that tenderness and that kind of um the beauty in it you know so yeah Emma it's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> I mean I've got so much out of this conversation and I'm going to be thinking about it for quite a while afterwards and about the archive and wishing it well and you know, I really hope that the kind of funding that you need comes on stream because it's it's more of this we need, not less. Do you, know I mean? you know, like we really need to sort have more archival work that kind of acknowledges the kind of the diversity and the range of different kinds of creative work and expression that's out there, you know. So, you know, it's such a shame that there, there isn't more resources coming your way, but let's let's hope that this this can be part of the campaign, the canvassing for those resources. So I just want to say thank you so much. And particularly also for reading Joe's poetry, which I think really maybe has really brought it home as well, what, we're, what, what, you're, what you're doing and what you're trying to do is. Thank you so much, Rosie. I've had such a good time. I was, I was nervous <laughs> to be able to, you know, and I suppose it's funny you were talking about like academic work and, and stuff, but I think that the nervousness comes less from like what, 
you know, will I do myself justice? And more from, will I do this project justice? Will I do these people justice? <laughs> and, you know, in terms of what I was saying, like, it's so much project-based work that takes a lot of time and um, that is kind of hard to represent on a CV. But I think if I took, if I take anything away uh, from, I suppose, the work I've done so far is like, it's such a privilege to be able to work with and represent people from my community's uh, creative production and to actually have been part of their process in, in for the first time reading their work, some of them first time having it out there in the ether and to kind of been able to be kind of uh, a guardian of it and like chaperoning that process. You know, it's, it, it's a feeling. And then I go back to that kind of idea of working class studies, like how you feel about what you're doing is almost as important about uh, as important as what you think about what you're doing. Yeah, that sounds great. And yeah, so thanks again. That's been fantastic. Thank you.